Are you going to go down the smoking route with your barbecue, Ed? You know that. It turns out that the um, one of the best suppliers of uh, smoking woods in the UK is uh, six miles away from my parents. So I'm going to send my poor 65-year-old mother off to buy a 40-kilo box of wood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you are a... Yes. <laughs> That's Mr. <laughs> to you. Turbo... <laughs> and there's the beginning for the podcast. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the AV Forums podcast for the 25th of June 2014. I'm Phil Hinton and joining me tonight is Assistant Editor Steve Withers. All I'm saying is there's a reason why Sporty Spice is the only one who ain't got a fella. Games Editor Mark Botwright. I know, it put me off beans on toast for life. Movies Editor Simon Crust. Get your lesbian feet out of my shoes. And audio reviewer Ed Selly. I didn't ask to be good at football. Guru Nanak must have blessed me. Welcome along to the podcast and sadly uh, we've got no Ask the Idiot question tonight or questions uh, obviously probably just uh, as well actually probably after last yeah week. and it's warm and sunny seemingly outside <laughs> not that I've looked out the window uh, so anybody with half a brain is obviously going to be outside with no interest in what a bunch of nerds sitting indoors has got to say about anything so we're going to kick off the hardware news with the time of recording this afternoon we broke this story <laughs> And by the time you listen to this on Wednesday or after that, it's going to be pretty old news. But Dolby Atmos uh, has been announced by Onkyo, Pioneer, Denon and others as being on their new models of AVRs come the autumn. And it'll also be available on Blu-ray disc. Uh, what do you think of this news, Steve? Expected, to be honest. Uh, you know, there was always at some point Dolby were going to look at a way of putting um, Atmos into the home. Um I thought it may, might wait a bit longer, you know, just to give the chance for some, there, there actually to be some cinemas in the UK with Dolby Atmos to start with. But um, I'm assuming that the manufacturers, the AVR receiver manufacturers, um, you know, they need something to, to sell more product and another badge on the front will do it. Uh, how it's being implemented is interesting. There's talk of uh, two ways, basically. One is actually having um, overhead speakers up to four and the other one they're talking about is having special Dolby Atmos speakers which have forward up up sorry upwards firing speaker um, drivers in the tops of the speakers I'm assuming which is interesting because I've just reviewed uh, an all-in-one system by LG uh, the BH950 which has exactly that it's got uh, uh, four um, tall boy speakers one for each front left front and right and rear front and rear left and right and uh, they've got up firing drivers um, to create a sort of a, a 3d um, height um, experience to the audio um, so it's not exactly new uh, it's been done by lots of people before uh, I'm guessing the interesting thing will be how uh, Atmos is implemented in terms of processing um, what, how much how channels amplification are necessary and, and how it's being delivered via Blu-ray they're talking about delivering it via Blu-ray I'm not quite sure how it's going to be done with it by metadata or what but um, that's that's the bit that's interesting me at the moment the detail yeah uh- Another interesting comment by uh, a forum member was that uh, with this announcement uh, come Christmas, uh, there'll be more uh, Dolby Atmos equipped uh, home cinemas than there will be auditoriums. Well, there's like three or four will have that number <laughs> covered. <won't we? laughs> so uh, what's interesting to me is, I mean, having, I mean, you, and I don't know if you experienced Atmos, Phil. If you, if uh, I haven't, no, just horror. Well, having having done both. Uh, um, in very, you know, in full-on cinema installations, um, my my, I, I tend to side with um, Wilfred on this one, uh, the guy that developed Aura, uh, Aura 3D. Sorry, he, you know, he talks about height as opposed to overhead, but a height le- level 
as being far more important than just having an overhead voice of God speaker. And I tend to agree with them on that one. I think that the way your ears have evolved, you're more attuned to noises of just above ear level as opposed to being directly above your head. And Atmos is very much about sound directly above your head. Now, I can't think of too many instances where having sound directly above my head is going to be a major improvement in the no, audio quality. The, the I odd, understand. The odd flyover. Yeah, exactly. Whereas additional height so to, to make it a more immersive experience, that kind of makes sense to me. So it'll be interesting. What I'm interested in seeing is how Oro 3D respond to this in terms of whether they're going to get into bed with very... I mean, obviously, they've got some high-end implementations for people like Datasat. But whether they're going to get involved with some, well, I mean, you know, more, can, can the... they can they get involved? Because, like you say, they're uh, they're involved with DataSat. They have their own uh, company, which is Storm Storm Audio, their own uh, section doing doing their own thing. I have no doubt that they have signed licensing agreements with DataSat. So you've got to wonder whether they're going to go from the really high end down to the level that we're talking about here, which is Onkyo, Den, and Pioneer. So you're talking about AV receivers from about eight hundred quid upwards. So, well, it's theoretically, I mean, as long as the, I mean, and they're still going. I mean, the only, the, the interesting thing I think is that the kind of places where you're going to have four overhead speakers or additional height speakers like this is, ten, is going to tend to be uh, pro installations as opposed to someone's front room. I just can't see most people convincing the wife to let them put four speakers over their head. Uh, on that basis alone, it's going to be more high installations, which suggests you know that that maybe Aura 3D's approach is correct in the sense that they're going for the high end market where people are going to do this. Whereas I don't think, I mean, you might you might have you know, Atmos on, on a on a on a thousand pound AVR, but I think most people are going to struggle to have a nine point one point four system in their in their home. Uh, in the US, you get a number of people using ceiling speakers for. AV systems, but that is exclusively ceiling speakers for AV systems. There's 5.1 with them all in the ceiling, and it sounds at least as bizarre as you can imagine. I'm sure that we will read about, and I will enjoy reading about a forum member that gets it up and running in a domestic situation, but the very idea of trying to plumb four ceiling speakers in, um, in addition to the ones that are already there, um, yeah, I, I don't... <laughs> I'm pleased that you know we've got a, a, a genuine new feature for AV receivers to offer the general public. Um, I just can't see it being the sort of thing that has people going, "Yeah, do you know what? I'm going to chop, throw, take the old stuff to the tip and get straight down to my dealer or online purve online purveyor of audio and and and, and update to this." I'm I'm pleased that we're making progress. I just it, it's the same jaded cynicism I get with a number of these things. AV receivers are losing market share because they're complicated and they have lot. They, they require you to put lots of speakers in the room. Um, so the solution is that the next generation of AV receivers are going to be more complicated and invite you to put more speakers into the room. Uh, yay. I was going to say that that was one of the things I liked about Aura 3D's approach was the idea of adding height speakers above the front left and right and rear left and right speakers. So in, in effect, you're not really taking up additional space. Uh, in terms of additional uh, adding speakers, you know, I mean, if you had a 7.1 system, you're adding two speakers at the rear. Suddenly, you're taking up the rear wall, which might be uh, inconvenient for people. Having a speaker in the ceiling definitely going to be inconvenient. But adding a speaker above an existing speaker kind of makes sense in terms of the, the, you know, adding um, a height channel and more impact and more immersion with the minimum amount of uh, disturbance in terms of the viewing environment. No. So, in, in, a kind of in a living room, you ain't going to get that past the wave. No, ain't going to happen. Is hey, my, my, my wife is is almost completely irrelevant in this. I just, you know, I've got people, you know, threatening to 
you know, I say threatening. I, I have invited them to build a conservatory on the back of the house. The con- conservatory, uh, the kitchen is going to be done later on in the summer. Just the idea of more tradesmen do it. And I know technically you could probably do it if you were proficient at DIY, but I'm not. Um, I mean, DIY is just a misspelling of do yourself an injury as far as I'm concerned. So it's just more, more effort. And I just, unless there is a very strong uh, launch set of Atmos blu-rays as well which again strikes me as a bit of an a bit of an if moment it's a lot of effort to go for for an indeterminate library of material we're talking about you know the wife acceptance factor or the partner factor um you know ceiling speakers or speakers up high you know personally i think uh anybody that's in a a loving relationship and using the living room as an av (laughs) as an av room as well there's no way they're going to get that past the other half I don't think so. Um, personally speaking, I'm not sure I'd want to do it to my own lounge. Really? I wouldn't want to put more speakers on the ceiling. Um, if I had a, a dedicated room, that's a different matter. But a lounge room, that's that's not what they're for. Um, yeah. So, you, Simon, so you're in... We want to sell you more stuff, mate. That's, that's all, what this is all about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's another badge to go in the front of an Oncure AV receiver. Which like they haven't got the, enough badges on the front of those things the, already. The, the, they're probably going to have to make it an inch wider just so they can get the extra badges in. i tell you what has occurred to me, right? I wonder how long it is before someone gets killed by a falling speaker and then somebody sues <laughs> on Pierre or Denon or Atmos. <laughs> it's going to happen, isn't it? I mean, you've got to make sure those things are up there really securely because, I mean, a speaker's pretty heavy. Yeah. And I mean, it lands it, on your head. It sounds like it's coming straight for me. <laughs> 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 yeah just a little bit too realistic the sound uh, mark is is uh is this something that floats your boat as a gamer i mean is it's is it something that the games industry is even interested in uh i very much doubt it i think uh sound designing games is, is still in its in its infancy put it that way um you know good good two channel would be would be good enough for me at the moment <laughs> there are auto 3d uh games actually aren't there phil uh, yes, there is. Yeah, there is. Yeah, I don't know about Atmos, but certainly there are Oro three D games that are mixed in Oro three D. So, you know, this that is, this is another thing, yeah. and and you know, I've been trying to keep out of this conversation. I know you've um, given the, given the uh, the Oro side, Steve, and I didn't really want to go one way or the other. But what I will say is, the Oro solution it has the up mixer as well, which we haven't heard anything about Dolby having an up mixer. So, um, I remember sitting and listening to that mono track with the up mixer and being blown away. We don't know if Atmos can do that kind of thing yet either. No. Um, yeah, like we said, it, I mean, it only broke today and um, it, we're still thin on details. But uh, but there's a lot, I mean, I, I've heard both and both both in certain circumstances can be very impressive. But I just think I can buy into the concept of height channels more than I can buy into concept of having four overhead speakers. I think that that's going to limit because you know, your brain isn't you aren't designed to hear sounds directly above you. That's not the way hearing works. So I'm less convinced of the benefits of doing that, yeah. and and it's definitely going to be harder to install. Basically. Yeah, like like Wilfred explained, and again, I'm not taking sides here. I'm just obviously putting over the the information that we have is up to sixty degrees, um, the human hearing at the side. So up to about sixty degrees, anything above that. Um, is more or less what he said useless unless it's a flyover effect um yeah. certainly useless for music because you have no reflections that come from from above and if they do come from above then they cure, cause distractions more than anything else so again he, he's 
talking science. We haven't heard the science from Dolby yet, so we need to give them a chance to tell us exactly how the system's going to work and how the decoding's done and if it has any neat up uh, mixer and that kind of thing. But um, it's interesting news. Uh, whether people are going to add extra speakers and stuff, I guess our crowd, AV enthusiasts, might be uh, uh, tempted if they have a dedicated room. Mm-hmm. I think it suits more the custom installers. Somebody mentioned custom install before. I think it might have been Ed. Um, that's definitely the market that it's aimed at. If you're starting with a with a, a blank piece of paper, there's nothing stopping you putting the extra speakers in the room and so on. So um, I think that's maybe where the market is going to be for that. And like you well, said, no, Steve, it, I mean, it, you're right. It's interesting. I mean, I'm switching over to um, uh, the little ellipse on planets, the planet M's, and they actually have a ceiling mount. So, I mean, if I take leave of my senses and have a heavy blow to the head, I can actually add four of them. And they, they actually, it looks a bit weird. They end up in these little sort of recessed sort of eyeball sockets sticking out of the ceiling. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in theory, I'm, you know, I've gone for five of them. Why, let, let's go all in. How many weird little balls can I fit in my lamp? I definitely think, think about- the custom install side of things. That's that's where you sell it. That's where it's going to get sold yeah, because definitely. it can be hidden away in the design. It yeah. can be hidden behind plaster or material or whatever, so you don't even know the speakers are there. And and I think that's that's the ideal market. Not, um, I don't think the AV enthusiast unless they've got a dedicated room. I think the thing about Dolby Atmos, it's not just about height channels. The thing about Atmos in the cinema is it has the two arrays of speakers going over your head but it also has side speakers going right up to the front script front of the screen itself that's that's part of the idea this is to get this smooth transition of pans from front to rear with you know with no gaps at all and it also means that they can then uh, in terms of the objects within the sound mix they can move them around this this 360 degree space with ease now looking at their uh, home um, version the way it's implemented in the home, there isn't any of that kind of speakers going from the front all the way down the side wall. Basically, it's just got it's either a classic 5.1 or 7.1 setup with additional height, um, overhead speakers. And there is also one, uh, what they call 9.1, 9.1.4, which is uh, front, left, and right. So front, uh, left, and right, and center. And then, I guess, speakers um, slightly ahead of you, slightly in front of you, and then to side and to the rear. Looks like um, width channels. Yeah, yeah, yes. Basically, the, the width channels, effectively. So that that well, I suppose that does replicate. It was meant to replicate to a degree that sense of having speakers that run all the way down the sidewall in a cinema. Um, so it'd be interesting. I mean, it would be interesting to do a comparison between a uh, cinema experience and, and the way it's implemented in the home. And can you do that? Are you going to have the speakers to do that, you guys? Maybe. Well, no, well, no, 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 put, put, put it this way. Speakers. Put it this way. Steve hasn't got anybody to object. <laughs> Yeah, but, but I might well become the first the, person to be killed by a speaker when it falls on my head with my <laughs> DIY skills. Uh, anyway, it's, it's interesting stuff. Like you say, it, it's only broken today, the news, and we, we still haven't had any of the, the real technical ins and outs. So once we have that, uh, we'll probably either discuss that next week or when the podcast comes back after the summer holidays. Uh, just to quickly wrap up, uh, Steve, you've been looking at a couple of things. I think the main thing we need to talk about here is WebOS. Uh, had a name change to Smart Plus, uh, but you've had the first LG TV through the LB730. Uh, the review will be up on the site by the time the podcast goes up. Uh, Smart Plus, you gave it a reference badge. Um, again, the review will be up soon. Um, and I kind of see why you did that, having played a bit with the system. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's funny. It's, it, after using it, you know, it's one of those systems that, because it's so well designed, 
in terms of the way you interact with it. It's very, very intuitive. It's totally, you know, seamless. It's part of the TV. It's not something that's added on. It's so uh, after using it for a, you know a couple of days, you know, I was just zipping through stuff, and going back to another TV that had you know a more traditional smart platform. It was like the Stone Age. It was just incredible how quickly I became used to. This, this completely different approach to implementing smart TV uh, on, on a TV itself. The thing about WebOS, as it's now called Smart Plus, but I've got to say I prefer WebOS as a name, but anyway, um, is, is that it is, it is effectively, I mean, it's not uh, a system that's added onto the TV. The smart platform is the TV, and then everything else is, is within that platform. So everything, be it an HDMI input or a Netflix or um, attached device, they are all treated as apps so on the bottom scroll bar you'll see um you know netflix and, and amazon prime and um hdmi one and hdmi two and you just click on it and it takes you straight to it and it's as simple as that and and you've got um when you hit the home home button there's um the, the scroll bar on the bottom and if you go backwards in other words to the left you go back through things you opened previously and if you go forwards to the right then you've got other things you can open as well but again totally intuitive it's like backwards and forwards in time you know, it's very responsive. It's very fast. Uh, you know, and you don't have to come out of one thing to go into another thing. If you're in Netflix, you just hit Amazon Prime. It takes you into Amazon Prime. I'm not saying it's instantaneous because obviously it needs to log into Amazon Prime. But you know, in in, in the sense that if, if it's ease of use, it's just incredibly intuitive and simple. It looks very slick. It's well designed, uh, and it's a you know, I really do believe this is a game changer in terms of the way that smart platforms are implemented within television. I've got to say, I, I played about with it on the 84 inch 4K TV, and uh, it was super fast on that TV obviously it's got the extra processing built in um, but that was that was going from uh, a 4k Netflix stream to another application and it was almost into it it was as quick as changing a channel on a normal TV it was that quick well but that because really? that may be because they were already logged in I suppose if you so, yeah, we'll yeah, quicker, obviously obviously if you, once you're logged in you don't need to log in again because it, it will it, log you out yeah, again yeah. But, um, obviously the, I got to stress the TV I had was not one of their flagship models it was kind of a mid-range so again, you know, yes, you're right. The higher models will have more processing power and will be even faster. But even on this, it was just – also, you've got the Magic Motion remote. So it's all just, you know, just you're just pointing at things and pressing so fast, so intuitive, so simple that, um, you know, you uh, since I, once I picked up an ordinary remote control and went through an, an, a normal smart platform, it, was, it just felt like a Stone Age in comparison. Okay. Uh, was the TV any good? Yeah, the TV was pretty good, actually. Which, um, um, I, I'll be honest and say last year um, – LG had a few problems in terms of their picture quality, I think. Uh, for example, things like the CMS didn't work properly. Uh, black levels were very poor. Um, there were, you know, a lot of banding and things like this. And it, they, maybe some other aspects of the TVs were good, but certainly the pure picture quality terms, I don't think they were great. Uh, I, I've got to say that I, the TV I had, which was the LB730, um, was very good. Very nice, very, very nice picture. Um, black levels, not... not as good as some of the competition who use VA panels, but still very good. The, the, the local dimming was excellent. Um, lovely natural image, uh, nice and accurate. CMS still didn't work properly, but given that the out-of-the-box um, color accuracy was very, very good, it wasn't really much of an issue. Um, a little bit of banding on the football when the camera was panning backwards and forwards. But other, other than that, I, I thought it was a really good picture. I was quite impressed. Okay, uh, and that wraps up how we'll be back in a second with some games news. We're back with some games news. Uh, PlayStation now markets in beta in the US, but there has been some information in terms of the likely cost, and it seems to be quite high. Yes, uh, it, it seems very much like it's it may end up being dearer than expected. Uh, 
very much still in the phase where Sony are, are testing prices. And so, you know, there's obviously room for some slight tinkering, but uh, you can see the, the various rental periods that they've set out and what the kind of price rise increments are going to be. So um, something like uh, Final Fantasy thirteen two, you can rent it for four hours for $4.99. For seven days... What? For four so you, hours. Well, you rent it to play for four hours? Yeah. For... Oh, I'll be up to one level through it by then. You're getting into, you're getting into, um, it, 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 it's cheaper to have, you know, crack holes. Sorry, well, just, just putting it but, out there. Well, particularly for, for a game that's going to have cinematics in it. If, if you're looking at, at something like a Final Fantasy title or, or say something like a Metal Gear Solid title, then half that time could be spent just watching a cutscene. Mm-hmm. Um, but it goes up to seven days for $7.99, uh, 30 days for $14.99, or 90 days for $29.99, which is more than the game would cost itself. Um, it, it's it's interesting in as much as a lot of people assumed that you know Sony had bought Gaikai and this, this idea of game streaming, that it would almost be a kind of a, a tester for people to... to go on to to enjoy Sony consoles and then they would, you know, buy a buy a PS4 or something. Um as it is, this seems a kind of weird in-between model where it's it's almost it's it almost looks slightly punitive the charges. So almost to kind of force people to say, well pony up and buy a proper console or something. Or it's it's therefore this idea in the future that it might come to Bravia smart TVs um and possibly, you know, other mobile devices. Um, so it's it's a it's a nice easy way to get towards premium content stuff like you know PS3 games, um, but you know we're we're close to the planned US release which I think was uh, end of July for the US, um, so it it certainly seems a lot dearer than than a lot of people expected. I think people assumed that it would be kind of you know maybe somewhere around you know ten dollars or something, and then you you'd get it a, a premium title for you know, a fortnight or, or something like that, um, or maybe even a little bit longer. As it is, um, with a few game rental places still about, it, it doesn't look like it's it's really going to fit into the market. I just can't see exactly where they plan to find people who will sign up for this. I'm not just laying the groundwork for a future model where it's your only option. Well, well, the only the, option, but there won't be anywhere else you can rent, and if you have to buy that, I mean, downloading either the game or renting it becomes... Um, you know, an economic viability. Yeah, I think the, the plan is is hopefully that this is where backwards compatibility will be. I mean, we've gone past the stage of simply backwards compatible from a hardware perspective because you're essentially, you know, trying to emulate a game is hard enough. Um, so, you know, as with the PS3, the early models of the PS3, where they just included the chipset from the PlayStation 2 in there. So you've basically just stuck a smaller console inside a larger console. Um and that's no longer really viable. So, so hopefully this means that you will have content that will always be available. The, the question, though, is in the long run, if the idea is that this is for backwards compatibility, what happens with games that say you've bought this generation that you want to take with you? Will you get a code with you that says you're, you're allowed to have access to this rentable title, to own that title? Or will it simply be a case of, well, you've got to buy it again, as the current model is? I'm sure they'll choose the least customer-friendly option possible. That if there's a lesson that we can draw from big companies trying to sell and rent things online, um, it's a learning curve and they start right at the bottom and choose the most difficult one that they can possibly envisage. Yeah, I mean, that's. <laughs> I think that's what a lot of people are seeing with this pricing. But 
it, it if they go down that route, it, it will be kind of a, a an easy opportunity missed to introduce. Certainly, if they manage to get it in almost like an, an app form to to translate it to mobile devices, Sony mobile devices, and perhaps other mobile devices or other smart TVs, it's a really easy way to kind of introduce people towards. Um, the idea of game streaming and what you know premium game content is like in comparison you know the golfing quality be- between say streaming something like the last of us or the average game that's available on a mobile platform is just absolutely night and day if you can kind of tap into you know two percent of that mobile gaming market you will be making huge amounts of money and also in in a certain sense sony have kind of almost cut off the market themselves because with things like PlayStation Plus and the instant game collection, anyone who's already who's got a console that these first things will be streamable on um, will already have access to cheaper quality games. Uh, and so therefore, why are they going to go out and, and buy these? Why are they going to start streaming something from the last generation when they've probably played it anyway? You know, it, if you're looking at a new market, then you, it has to be priced accordingly. But if someone's already got the console, they've likely played most of the things they want to anyway. So unless it's cheap enough, why is someone on, say, a PlayStation 4 going back to a PS3 title when it's costing them, you know, the, the more than a, a PS4 title might do? Yeah, it's definitely aimed at a completely new, a new generation of gamers, isn't it? I mean, as, as Ed said, if they can tap into the mobile market, um, maybe give them a first taste for free and then screw them over, <laughs> over a period of time, that, that, that could be a massive generator of revenue for them. Yeah, and if they get it certainly on on the smart TVs and that kind of thing, then obviously that that opens up huge doors for them. But at the moment, at the, at the pricing that's, that's shown, if they stick with that, um, it could be quite a niche service, which would be a, a shame because they spent a lot of money to to get this game streaming company. Yeah, it's Sony. We'll subsidise it. Yeah, I think the PS4 was is getting sold pretty much kind of at cost, or you know they're they're making a, a small profit as soon as you've bought anything. So, you know, they're not subsidising that much, not as much as in the days of the PS3. And that's games news. What are you doing, movie-wise? I'll do all four and five minutes. Four and five? <laughs> oh, hang on, hang on, weather. I've got my Casio data bank. Right? As soon as Steve starts, then I start it. Okay. And this is on, what, what is it you've got? Casio Data Bank, and right. it's gold as well. Okay, well, fantastic. Okay, uh, <laughs> right. So, what's at the cinema, Steve? Well, it's one of those um, multiple bus weekends, so we've got four movies here, uh, coming out in the same weekend. First of which is Three Days to Kill. This is written by Luc Besson, directed by the ludicrously monikered McGee, and starring Kevin Costner. C- uh, clearly, this was written for Liam Neeson, who presumably thought it was just too ridiculous even for him to do. Um, and in, in it, Costner plays an aging CIA killer who's got terminal cancer and gets retired out of the CIA, goes back to his family who are in Paris for some strange reason. But obviously, it's written by Luc Besson, so it's set in Paris. Um, and uh, he tries to you know, sort of reconnect with his daughter and his, his ex-wife, but then discovers that um, the CIA aren't quite finished with them yet. They send over another um, operative who says she's got a, uh, an experimental cure. And if she, he kills a certain number of people for her, she'll give him the cure and, and cure him of cancer. Uh, it's as ridiculous as it sounds. Um, it's got some enjoyable action set pieces in it. But ultimately, um, it's that kind of strange Luke Besson. He's, he's knocked these out every year now. And there's a kind of combination of a bit of comedy and a bit of action. And it doesn't really work. It's a bit too Gallic for my taste. McGee's not a good director. Um, Costner's kind of sleepwalking his way through the role. 
not a great film. I, th- I think Kaz's review is already up. He's probably a little bit generous on it. I think he gave it seven, but I'd say it's probably a five out of ten, really. It's um, it's mediocre at best. Um, and as I said, it, it looked like one of those films had been written for for um, Liam Neeson, and even he thought it was ridiculous, so didn't do it. Time check. One minute, 20. On you Ooh, go. All right, better go. Um, Bell. Bell, um, this film is a British, the first British movie that was shot entirely in 4K on Sony's F65 cameras. Uh, it's about a, uh, it's a true story about uh, uh, a young girl who is the illegitimate mixed-race daughter of an admiral, a Royal Navy admiral. He brings her home to his uncle, who's um, an earl, and she's she was raised, um, you know, as one of the family. Um, and it, it's one of those, it's a, I thought it was a really, really good film because it, it raises some interesting issues, not just about uh, race, but also about um, the, the structure of society at the time in 18th century England in terms of um, both the class structure and also gender structure because if you, it, it makes an interesting parallel between you know people who were literally slaves and also people you know women who if they had n- no income of their own were dependent on marrying a wealthy man uh, and being utterly dependent upon them and interestingly in the film bell who's no dido who's who's the the, the young the young girl who's who's mixed race she actually her father dies and, and leaves her a, a pension of a thousand pounds a year so she's independently wealthy whilst her cousin um isn't and her father's disowned her and she has to find a husband and it so it raises up lots of interest just about slavery as there's, there's a court case going on in the background about the zon which was a true story um about this ship where they killed all the slaves on board because they weren't worth anything and then tried to claim on the insurance so it's about abolition it deals with sexism um with, with, with um, racism with slavery but also it, it builds into that uh, kind of jane austen style romance i thought it was a great movie it looked gorgeous the cast is superb it's got like tom wilkinson Miranda richardson emily watson really the girl that plays um dido bell she's excellent as well it's really really well well acted well written well made film and i thoroughly enjoyed it so i'd say that was a good eight out of ten time check Just three minutes through, three minutes then we've got the fault in our stars this is i must admit i was the only bloke in the cinema on this one and i was the oldest <laughs> by about i was the oldest by about 30 years but a really good film um it's you know it's clearly aimed at a teen audience it's about uh, two teenagers both of whom have got cancer they meet and fall in love um, you know, it's a full old school weepy, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm, big, I'm a big enough man to admit I blood my eyes out at the end of this. Um, it's funny in places. Mm-hmm. The cast are really likable. You like the characters. It doesn't shy away from the realities of the fact that these are children with cancer and they are most likely going to die. Um, so, you know, it's, I'm not saying it's laugh a minute, but it is still enjoyable in a sense. But yeah, it doesn't shy away from the realities of the case. And what at the end of it, it is with the real withers. It's heartbreaking at the end, and I did quite enjoy it. Um, again, eight out of ten. And then I saw Jersey Boys, which is Clint Eastwood's film version of the stage, the famous the, the stage musical. Um, this was a bit of a strange one because clearly Clint Eastwood was much more interested in the history of the Jersey Boys in terms of the the, the band, um, the um, the Four Seasons. You know that they were they grew up in in a rough part of New, of New Jersey and um, they were tied into the mob and he's obviously interested in that part so there's a lot of like swearing it's got a really foul mouth screenplay but which doesn't really tie in with the idea of them just singing their nice doo-wop songs um, yeah he seems more interested in the realities of the mob connections and he's in about their musical career um, and so the music kind of gets sidelined and I don't think that's how I haven't seen the stage play but I suspect that the musical is, is a lot more about the music right at the very end of the film they have a bit where they all sing and dance down the street with lots of you know medley of hits medley of four season hits that seemed more like I suspect the Ten, musical is nine and so people eight, um, who like the musical seven, probably won't like the film six, bit of mixed bag, gave it six five out. four three two one well done, Mr. Withers. Ish. Ish. I didn't get the score at the end. I give it six out. I said I'd give it six out of ten. Yeah, but I couldn't hear you because somebody was doing well, a Well, because someone was talking over me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, Simon, Blu-ray is released next week. Very, very slim pickings. 
Um, we've got a dire film ride along, which is a action comedy with um, Ice Cube Kevin in it. Hart and, and Ice Cube. Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen it, but I know it's going to be terrible. I've seen it, and it's bollocks. Yeah, <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Like, I, I knew someone had seen it. I knew it was going to be terrible. Anything with him, with him in it is, is just awful. Um, and the uh, the other one released is um, uh, Nonstop, which is uh, Liam Neeson still riding the coattails of Taken, I think. Um, it's just Taken again, on not a plane, a, isn't it? Not a particularly good film. Well, not exactly Taken on a plane, but it is like, it, it is, he's, you know, washed up, detecting, um, was it a flight, uh, air marshal, that's right, he's an air marshal on a plane. Mm. The setup's quite interesting, but the, the it doesn't carry it through to the end. It's not too bad. It's 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 an enjoyable hour and a half of hokum, but uh, you know, don't expect anything too deep. It, but it's it's okay. <laughs> you know, it does what it says in the tin, frankly. <laughs> and are we interested uh, at all in any of these that are coming out? Would you recommend them to anybody? Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't touch right along with a barge pole, um, but I'd probably give non-stop um, uh, a viewing. Um, no, would that be? Would that be a rental? Wouldn't it? Well, I was just going to say, yeah. would that would that be a rental, or would uh, would it be a stream? <laughs> <laughs> ah, you see, good question. Uh, no, I would buy it and sell it. <laughs> okay. And Steve, would you stream this? I, I'm I'm sure it would pop up on Sky if it's out on disc. It'll pop up on the Sky and Now TV. Uh, if, if I hadn't seen Nonstop already at the cinema, yeah, I probably would watch it on uh, on Netflix or wherever it popped up in, in and just you know on a board. like for example, I didn't get a chance to see The Family, which is another Luke, Be- Luke Besson's last film at the cinema, and that turned up on on um, Netflix. So I watched that quite recently, and you know it was okay, but I certainly wouldn't blow twenty quid on it. Had to mention the N word. It's inevitable, really. Uh, right, so uh, we haven't even seen episode seven yet. Are we bothered about who's going to helm episode eight? I mean, did, did yeah, we think? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that they're picking you know, that Disney slash Lucasfilm are trying to help, you know get in interesting, talented people to work on these films, not just hacks. So the fact that Ryan Johnson, who made Looper and Brick and the Brothers Bloom, who I think is a very talented writer director, is going to be writing and directing Star Wars Episode Eight, and also being involved in the writing of Episode Nine. So presumably, J.J. Uh, Abrams, who's co-written and, and is directing Episode Seven, will also be partly involved in writing of Episode Eight, along with Ryan Johnson and presumably Lawrence Kasdan. They've also got Gareth Edwards, who recently made Godzilla, who's going to be directing one of the standalone Star Wars films. Again, an interesting choice. I, I, I think that that's, that bodes well for the future. I mean, so far, everything that I've seen and heard from Lucasfilm or Disney about these films and the people that have been involved in them have all been top quality individuals, you know, who you think, well, so far, I haven't heard anything that's made me think, oh, Christ is going to be like the prequels. Hmm. Has there been um, much information on these standalones? I do find them intriguing. Are they time period consistent with this? Yes, they will be. They will be set in the same time period. Well, well, certainly within the time period of the film, so anywhere between the prequels, start of the prequels, and and these ones that they're doing now, somewhere within those time period. Um, but they'll be concentrating on something else. So, for example, there are rumours one of them will concentrate on Boba Fett, which doesn't really help because he still gets swallowed by a giant vagina in the sand in Return of the Jedi. So, at the end of the day, what can you do with him? But you know that, that's Washed the concept. I think. Movie he escaped death from the giant. <laughs> well, <laughs> even after it belched. <laughs> Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I think that there's what well, yeah, this is a huge there's a huge universe here that they can play in. And if you look at what Marvel have been doing, obviously they've got a whole wealth of material to choose from in terms of Marvel universe over the last sixty odd years. 
which is fine. And, and Luke and, and Star Wars universe isn't quite as broad as that, but there's plenty of room for potential to do that. It's good. I mean, I'm excited. Unfortunately, Harrison Ford broke his leg two weeks ago when the door of the Millennium Falcon lands on him, so he's out of action for eight weeks. But um, other than that, so far, uh, touch wood, it looks okay. One yeah. of the standalones for me would have to be get Dennis Lawson back in and do old yeah, do wedge. A wedge movie. <laughs> old wedge the movie. That'd be brilliant. Do it like a road film or something, just to really subvert expectations. Am I the I, only I, one that finds it surprising though that JJ's away after seven, after doing just one movie? Oh, I, that's I, because I, of the time had, schedule, Phil. They've, they've only got two years. To, they, 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 episode seven comes out next year. And episode eight comes out two years after that. There's no way he could write and direct one straight. You know, he couldn't. He'd be still just be finished. They'll be going into pre-production on this before he's even finished shooting, doing finished post-production on the next one. So there's no way he can do it. But I think having different guys directing them is good too. I mean, you know, the original trilogy went uh, you know, Lucas Kasdan, not sorry, Lucas Kirshner and um, Mark, Mark Markwand. So why not um, have different directors doing different episodes? I think yeah, I, I just I just assumed that because he'd done both the Star Treks that he was signed in to do the three Star Wars movies. I, yeah. I just assumed yeah. that that was the case. He could come back and do the ninth one. Of I'm sure um, lots of people assumed that that was the case until this, this was announced last week. Um, any word on Chewbacca or the Ewoks? Chewbacca's in it, definitely. Oh, good. Peter Mayhew is playing Chewbacca as well, so that's all good. I didn't know if they could write Harrison Ford's broken leg into the script, having to carry it around <laughs> on Chewbacca's back. Well, well like C3PO yeah. in, yeah. in What, and magically just start making Chewbacca say Hodor a couple of times, just <laughs> cash in our completely different franchise. If you haven't seen Game of Thrones, that isn't very funny, but if you have, it's bang on the money. <laughs> so Phil will have a clue what you're talking about, Ed. Can I just uh, say, just as a complete random aside, for those of you on Twitter, Hodor Clock... Is just it does exactly what it says on the tin, and it's a magnificent Twitter feed. Oh dear, we were doing quite well there. We'd been amazingly on message for an impressive forty-one odd minutes. Um, right. So getting back to Star Wars, uh, Steve, you're quite <laughs> up on this. You think it's it's going to be successful? Uh, I've got to say, I'm still not. I'm not convinced. Um, I'll go and see it, but. Uh, still not not going to. Well, that's the thing they've got you anyway. It's like I'm not convinced, but I'll go and see it. You well, know, of course I'm going to go and see it, Ed. I grew up with it, so I know. But that means <laughs> anything next, that says Star Wars in years, they can yeah. say actually, uh, Harrison Ford is going to be in full clown makeup, or <laughs> yeah, we've decided that the Millennium Falcon yeah, is actually going to be gonna go broken and, and towed yeah. around, towed around by you know by, by animals for the dread. And you'll go, yeah, well that sounds shit, but do you know what? I'll still go. Yeah, and watch it's Star Wars. It. It's got Harrison Ford in it. It's got Carrie Fisher and uh, the other one. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one, Mark Hamill. <laughs> Poor Mark. I knew he was. I was just joking. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, it's got the old, he's got the old crew in it. You know, it's, uh, this, he's got this the is why I'm worried. Cast are interesting. Oh, it's, it's good. Uh, so far, nothing I've seen so far has made me think, oh, f which you know was happening quite a lot during the prequels. So, so far, yeah, I'm but, not but I, yeah, this. but not before everybody had seen episode one. Mm, no, because there, there was no I, I leaks, so. You know, everybody. I, wasn't too, uh, I, wasn't I, too I couldn't care less job after. Job I couldn't care less after episode one. I couldn't care less then. It could, you know, that was that was as low as it could get. I was so deflated after that. And this is my issue here. I've got high hopes for seven. I don't want to have high hopes for seven because I don't want to be let down again. It, it's, it, you know, you've alluded to it already tonight, Steve. You know, you're a guy in your forties crying. It's not a pretty sight. <laughs> I saw the trailer for Mrs. Brown's Boys again before one of the films. It's like, oh, 
God, this looks bad. Yeah, but you're going to have to go and see it. Yeah, when does it open? <laughs> oh, actually, no, I won't, because it opens while we're not doing the podcasts. <laughs> no, I demand. Yeah, no, 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 it op- no, it opens on Friday, and we're recording one more podcast before the summer holidays. It's on Friday, does it? I think it does, yeah. I think it's Friday. I think I've seen a thing today where it said it was four days to go. I'm not getting out of this. So you're not Four out of days it. before the end of the world. <laughs> uh, right, uh, what else have we got movies-wise? Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, the most expensive movie of all time. Is the, wait, have they just come out with this, Steve? Uh, it was always expensive. Uh, everyone knew that, but obviously um, someone's just started to work out the numbers a bit. And... Uh, um, because it was a bit tricky to work out initially because the budgets for, uh, they combined the budgets of, um, what was it called? Um, Dead Man's Chest and At World's End. But having worked out how much they spent on each of those two films, they spent a staggering $342 million on, on At World's End. And that's not including prints and advertising. That's just the bottom line neg- negative cost. Um, which is, yeah, when you think about it, a, a ridiculous amount of money spent on the movie. Um, it just tops Cleopatra, which was the previous record holder, which at the time cost $44 million, but that was in 1960. Uh, so in today's money, that's like $340 million. Um, and you've got to think, like, you know, Cleopatra was, was for years and years, was the most expensive film of all time. And, um, but we're not counting. There is an, one exception to that, which is the Russian film version of War and Peace, which uh, the amount of money spent on that is debatable, but it was a shed load, apparently. But no one's quite sure, because obviously it was shot during the days of you know, the Soviet era. So... It was a lot of money uh, involving most of the Red Army, I think. They probably could have invaded Russia when that film was being shot there was no one defending any. They were all filming this bloody film. Because if you've seen the battle scenes like Borodino in, in that film, I'm not joking. There's, you know, it's one of those films where you, there's no CGI and you see hundreds of thousands of people on these fields and you're thinking, bloody hell, that looks impressive. Um, but not counting that one. Shrinipatcher was the most expensive film by miles for a long time. Um, but now, two, three... 100 million a movie is not unusual. I, I know we talked about this a few months ago that the accounts for um, um, the Hobbit production were, 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 were had to be lodged in New Zealand uh, annually. And at that point, and this was the end of last year, they'd already spent over 550 million uh, at that point on the first on the Hobbit movie. So, I mean, we're looking at probably what seven seven hundred so three quarters of a billion dollars on the three movies uh, uh, i think i think you'll hit a billion by the time yeah well finish. i'm not counting in that by the way that doesn't include us again that doesn't include you know prints or, or advertising costs which can be as much as the same amount again so you know, you're looking at you know apparently the warner brothers are actually making very much money on the hobbit films because they're costing so much money cameron's talking about you know, making three avatar movies for a billion dollar budget yeah but you see if if the studios are that silly to be given you know that type of money out then you know if it fails then they've only got themselves to blame and i i, I know we've been saying this for a while but there is there has to be an implosion it has to implode at some point and it has to try and right itself just like any any economy does now and again you get boom and bust where it has to right itself we're getting to the stage now where the budgets are just so i mean you you're talking about 500 million there I, I can't put that into terms that I understand you know, you know what I mean it's, it's, it's times what 500 <laughs> the original price you, of you a, know what I mean you, the you original know, price just, of a B2 stealth bomber yeah. the most expensive aircraft ever made is 532 million dollars a unit so you can either have a tatty film involving Johnny Depp 
and then sorry, two Tatties films involving Johnny Depp, or you can have one of the most sophisticated and complicated weapon systems ever made. Yeah, yeah it, it's it's a way that people say, oh, it costs five hundred million. When when you actually stop and think about just how much money that is. I know, but no, no, no. I'm, I'm only getting started. Do you want to then, if to, to, I say we've given you the five hundred and thirty-two million pound point that dollar point there, well, when the, well, the five hundred and thirty-two million pounds when they actually spent that on the, on the stealth bomber, it would have been cheaper to have it made out of solid gold in a one-to-one scale. So now are we? Now we're starting to play about with some proper numbers. A solid gold stealth bomber. Or Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. I, I guess just for those that are interested, I can give you this is the list, the top ten most expensive films of all time adjusted for inflation. So number one, Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, three hundred and forty-two million dollars. Cleopatra, uh, three hundred and forty million dollars. Titanic, two hundred and ninety-four million dollars. Spider-Man three, two hundred and ninety-four million dollars. Tangled, uh, two hundred and eighty-two million dollars. That was um that was so expensive because it was a, like a 10-year production period on that film. They kept, I think they made the film about three times and kept changing their minds. Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, $275 million. Waterworld, $271 million. Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, $263 million. Avatar, $261. And at number 10, The Hobbit, or the first film of The Hobbit, $257 million. So on that basis, then, we are looking at three quarters of a billion dollars yeah, on the see, Hobbit movies. I, I don't want to get all preachy and all the rest of it, but when you when you start looking at those types of figures and then you start for, for some entertainment, and some would argue that there's not a lot of entertainment in some of the films that you've mentioned on no, that list. I'd, I'd rather watch Mad Max, which costs $400,000. Yeah, but, but when you're talking about <laughs> you know that type of money and then you see the issues in the world that, that, you know, that some countries, you know, people don't even eat for a week. It's just perverse sometimes when you're looking at these figures. Something has to happen. Something has it has to implode. It has to right itself in some way. Well, I mean, I'd be curious to see. I mean, Titanic. I'm sorry, not Titanic. Well, Titanic and Cleopatra as examples. I mean, Cleopatra number two. I mean, that that was a film where they built half of Rome, right? In Rome, gigantic sets. You know, you you can at least see where the money went. It was notorious at the time for over expense. Uh, it was the only major production at 20th Century Fox at the time, and so every other production was was billing Cleopatra. Um, so you know, the budget was inflated for various reasons, but uh, that was a notorious, um, you know, example. Not, not the norm. Definitely not even close. That was no, that was an, a, a very an out, a total outlier, a very unusual film where the budget went spiraled out of control. Um, and you know, the, um, it, it was the biggest expensive film of all time for years and years and years. Titanic was the most expensive film of all time when it came out. Um, again, they built <laughs> ship, didn't they? Or at least half of it. You know, and they built a whole studio complex in order to film it. There was a lot of reasons why that was so expensive. But when you're starting to see things like Harry Potter and Half Blood Prince costing two hundred seventy five million dollars, and that's not an unusual thing. You think, where the hell is all the money going? Yeah, I mean, exactly. you know, I'm not paying the actors. I mean, they're a bunch of kids. So why is that costing two hundred? I mean, and then and you start thinking, well. So is that all effects? Is that the effects budget? Well, well it kind of it kind of be the effects budget because all the effects no, houses getting are, screwed, aren't are they? getting screwed and they're all going out of business. So yeah. well, no, to be fair, but there's a secondary to that is that at the moment we don't actually know what the market price, including profit and sustainability for some of these effects, actually is because the companies just underbid each other to the point of suicidal. And and also their contracts are appalling. They 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 no nobody seems able to write a decent contract where they're not liable for people changing their mind halfway through and they're expected to cover all the costs. So the the, the honest answer to that is we don't know how much a fully effects 
laid the film is actually supposed to cost when the people get to keep their jobs at the end of it. Uh, Mark, from a games point of view, how big are the budgets there? Because I was reading something that not that long ago that was saying that you know the games industry actually brings in more profit than the movie industry does. Wait there while I run to Mr. Google. Well, I know the last. I'm trying to remember. Hundred million was it to make something like that? I'm trying to remember what the the Grand Theft Auto Five budget was. Oh, Grand Theft Auto Five, yeah. Uh, development and marketing budget of 170 million pounds. Um, see, that, that's marketing as well, though. You see, that's not just development. But these are just but, but these budgets for these films. That's not even including the marketing costs, which will be twice the, the same again, effectively. Yeah, um, exactly. And if you consider the amount of years that a, a game is in development for, as well, you know that, that that can easily be kind of you know five six years. Some some can be a decade or something in the making. From, from the initial concept. Uh, but again, yeah, they, they bring in huge amounts. Um, but the thing that films have over them, perhaps, though, you know, games do have this kind of immediacy and there is, you know, the, the kind of tagline of bigger than Hollywood. However, in terms of the amount of money that they make over their lifetimes, it's pretty much a kind of punchy, you know, people buy them at the time and in a couple of years, they're out of date. Whereas... You know, films continue to appear on different formats for decades afterwards. True. They're, 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 it's got more ancillary revenue streams, hasn't it? I mm. suppose. So, so what you're saying, Mark, is that in terms of entertainment, actually, you know, investing in games development is actually cheaper, more cost effective and likely a ton of profit than movies. Are we investing your money here or mine? Your money. Uh, mine, uh, I'm putting them in neither. <laughs> <laughs> The amount of games, if you consider the amount of games that actually turn out to be a success, if you consider the kind of the the amount of um, kind of talent going towards mo- mobile gaming and that kind of thing, and the the proliferation of free to play and just the kind of race to the bottom of who can offer, you know, a little amount for absolutely nothing initial cost, then you know there's not much money to be made there. However, there will be exceptions which make absolutely you know billions. Yeah. Okay. So let's flip this around and send it in uh, Simon's direction. Uh, Thirty-nine years ago, Simon, yes. uh, a certain film was released, uh, which awesome. became the it, it is now acknowledged to be the first ever blockbuster, summer blockbuster. Yep. Uh, in in movie history. So was that film, and we're talking about Jaws, responsible for the mess we find ourselves in now? <laughs> he laid lay the blame fairly and squarely at the feet of Stephen. Um, uh, what's his name? Spielberg. <laughs> Spielberg. Yeah, that's how your brain went. Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what, like, sorry, sorry. What's your job again? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's only funny how the brain went. I was gonna, I was gonna say Stroberger. I thought Stroberger. <laughs> not even name. Every step I call Stroberger. He's having a stroke. That's what it is. <laughs> I've seen the effort. <laughs> Fast face, yeah. arms. <laughs> Spielberg. Time, isn't it? <laughs> uh, um, oh, I don't. I think there was a, a lot of things happened at that time, wasn't there? A, a lot of elements all came together to to create the what was what turned out to be the blockbuster. Um, but, and then of course it was followed up with you know things like Star Wars and, and ET and all the uh, everything ever since. Um, but I guess it was they were they started throwing bigger and bigger budgets at these at these films to make bigger and bigger spectacles. But I mean that that did I mean as Steve was alluded to earlier was that that happened 
much earlier in in film history time um in the in the um in the 60s it was happening then and it sort of had a had a boom bust and you had the proliferation of the 70 indies films which again built up to jaws star wars and the rest of them so it just seems to be going on and on and on and on and you you're absolutely right um although you did say this last year about the bubble's going to burst because you did say about superhero films but they still they're still going aren't they yeah but we haven't, we haven't still had really the, going we haven't had the uh what is it spider-man versus batman we haven't had that yet is it that one or is it no, superman? superman superman and batman i knew it well, was well, that, well that's what was was saying that they look like next year there was going to be a real you know uh um yeah basically there was so many big budget major blockbuster films coming out in a space of probably july of next year but what's happened is a lot of them have been moved so for example spider-man i'm sorry spider-man Superman versus Batman. I see, it's not that easy. Been, well, no, you've just said it, got it in my head. Super, Superman versus Batman has been moved to 2016. So it's not, apart that, under, under the claims that, you know, Zack Snyder needs more time to, to do the film, to make the film right. and to write it and everything. But I think more to the point, they bottled it and thought, Christ, we're going to get murdered if we go out, come out in that summer. Because to be honest, uh, Man of Steel didn't do that well. I mean, it cost $230 million and it, it you know, just about made its budget back. So, they're putting a lot of a lot of um, Warner Brothers in particular, I think, are spending an awful lot of money trying to create. They, they've had the Nolan, you know, Batman movies, and they've done extremely well. But now they're trying to sort of shoehorn Batman back in because Superman isn't that popular a character, really. I don't think in terms of budget, See, in terms of box office, as opposed to Batman. The, the, the problem, you know, it's a great character for a comic book, but when you try to, and it, and it's and it's failed in the past, where you try to bring it to the big screen, you know. If you've got this guy who is almost invincible, then you know the the alter ego, the the bad guy, has to be so uh, over the top that you lose all credibility. So even trying to set it in some kind of you know movie reality or, or reality world, it doesn't really work with that character. I don't think because he's no, invincible. Superman's definitely a difficult character to to turn into a movie because first of all, he's got that kind of Dudley Do Right, you know truth, justice, American way kind of a persona, which is always a bit old-fashioned now. He's invincible, effectively, or pretty much, which means, you know, you know, it's difficult to put him in jeopardy and in, in, in peril. He can be done. I mean, Captain America is a, was a, you know, a very patriotic character from the, from the Second World War um, originally, and, and transferring him to the modern age was tricky. And, you know, certainly they did the, the first movie they set during World War II. Um, it worked in the Avengers because he was part of a group. The, the the sequel, um, Winter Soldier, worked because they they kind of took that whole thing and turned it on its head. They turned it into a sort of seventies conspiracy th- thriller, and, and that was a clever idea because it made him more um, acceptable in, in to a modern audience than he would have been if he just been the classic sort of patriotic Dudley Do Right character that he was in the in the original comics. So you can do it if you're prepared to take a risk. The problem is. A lot of studios aren't prepared to say, I think Marvel have taken some pretty big risks and they've paid off. Um, and looking at what they've got lined up in the next few years, there's some interesting stuff coming and they are still taking risks. Um, I don't think Warner Brothers have been. All I can say is that sitting in the cinema watching Bell, which was a low budget, like five million quid movie, um, you know, about real people and real things. It was such a, I just so yeah, nice it's a bit, to it's a bit sit through a film. 18th century, about- how many people are going to be interested in that? Steve. Well, you know, there were no giant robots. Monsters. It was such yeah, a yeah, and no, nobody interested in it. Change. 
unfortunately, people don't go and see it, and we, I wish they would. It, honestly, the film of the week, don't get knock all the rest of that rubbish on the head. Go and see Bell. It's a lo- lovely little movie uh, about about something genuinely on you know real. Uh, and, and unfortunately, Steve, you know, you know, films are so subjective that that trying to get people in and and you know, t- you know, writing a review, it's the most difficult thing you can do is for a movie, is write mm-hmm. a review, because oh, yeah. it's such a subjective thing. You know, well, and, and people... mostly, although there are definitely times when it's a total piece of shit. I think we can all put our hands firmly up our asses and say that Ride Along was crap. <laughs> uh, an interesting thing, and uh, I, I found this out today, um, it's been a, an entire year has passed, because I always buy my, my Blu-rays from Amazon. I haven't bought anything from Amazon in a year, so I haven't bought any <laughs> Blu-rays in a year. Now, is that, that, that's not because you're boycotting Amazon. No, it's not because I'm boycotting Amazon. And um, I lot it last year with the, with the new site and all the rest of it. A lot of time was taken up by that. But since Christmas, I've watched about two movies. And I haven't bought anything. And Steve, you gave me Captain Phillips to watch. Yeah, the one film you watched, I gave you. I think <laughs> I've watched, since Christmas, I've watched probably 300 movies. <laughs> yeah, but you do go to the cinema and watch four in a go. You know, and, and only take a break to have a curry. Um, but but what about? I mean, Simon. Uh, obviously, you get you get the stuff through for review. But when did you actually go out and buy a disc? Uh, when did I go out and buy a disc? Um, I'll tell you. The last disc I bought was uh, True Detective because I'd never heard of it, and you said, "Oh yeah, Mate, and, this and is really what, good." What did you think? I've watched the first two episodes, and it's building up to be something pretty damn spectacular. Yeah, totally. It looks and sounds incredible. Um, yeah, so hurry up with this podcast because I want to go and watch the rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just thought it was interesting. And, and um, I have watched movies, but they've been streamed. Which, what does that say? Uh, Ed, uh, I know you buy records, but when was the last time you bought a movie? Um, when did Rush come out? Oh, wow. Uh, about six months ago. Yeah. There we go. Okay. And have you, st- have you streamed stuff since then? Uh, very much so, yes. Um, and the Sky On Demand movies thing as well. Um, same, just just to quantify, it's not just the N-word. There are other means that I'm, 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 I'm getting <laughs> filmed. Other streams are available. Um, but no, no TV. It begins uh, with an N. By comparison, uh, I think I've bought 62 records this year. <laughs> I think it's, it's either 60, 62 or 63. I haven't worked it out. That's, it, it's, that's it's a lot of money. The is, last one of those arrived on Friday. That is a lot of money, Ed. A lot of money. Uh, yeah, but the difference is um, that I have far more satisfaction of ownership from them. Oh, don't, don't, and, don't get me wrong. And, I'm, not, I'm not having a go at you for spending your money on that. No, <laughs> no. But, all. It's but your equally, passion. there is, a, on a cynical level, Phil... Um, if I needed to get shot of them, the Blu-rays are worth buttons. The records, you get pretty much back what you paid that, for. That them. is very true, Ed. That is, um, I was pretty shocked at how little yeah, you get for a Blu-ray nowadays. And one, one of the records I bought some years ago on eBay for £11.82, um, it turns out it's one of only 75 on the planet, and a, a one in a very similar number point went for several hundred quid the other day, and I'm thinking about basically just... That will that will cover most of my purchases this year if I let you. Or, or another jacket. Or your barbecue. <laughs> or your barbecue. Or my barbecue. Right. Yeah, you know, one or the other. Or a, sorry, or a yeah. new jacket. When I, the, the, you see the jacket, you, you keep bringing back the jacket. The jacket is on. Is going to start year two. Literally, obviously, we had the longest day 
over the weekend. Yeah, the, now, the nights are drawn in now. Game yeah. of Thrones mode. Winter is coming. It is. And, you know, it's going to be back and ready to go. Um, and it will be for the next... Well, I reckon I'll die before it does. <laughs> it's, it's indestructible. I, you know, year one purchase, very steep. But as the decades roll on, brilliant. Not a problem. Bargain. Mr. Botwright... Where do you stand buying discs or streaming? What what's been your your movie preference last year? Um, I haven't bought a Blu-ray yet, probably for about a year, maybe okay. maybe even kind of eighteen months. Okay, that's a long uh, time. It is. it is. Well, once I bought the complete Lone Wolf and Cub collection, <laughs> I felt <laughs> can't get any better than that. So go out on a high. Well, I had four arrive today. So. Yeah, but you see, the, the, I think the other thing that's kind of put me off is I've got a huge pile to watch. Every time I walk in the cinema room, this thing's taller than I am, this pile. So it's maybe subconsciously I'm saying, look, get them watched before you buy any more tap. But having said that, I've been streaming quite a bit and um, it could be the way of the future. It's the lazy man's <laughs> option built, streaming. I think it might be the future, Steve. I've watched about 20 movies on, on Netflix uh, recently. Um, and what they are basically are films that, like, for example, Luke Besson's The Family. Stuff that uh, I think you're seeing at the cinema, don't want to waste 20 quid on buying uh, on Blu-ray, but would happily watch, you know, for an hour and a half, two hours on Netflix and on a, on a, on a quiet evening or a Sunday afternoon. And, and I've watched a, about 20 movies in the last, say, month. Um, just catching up on stuff on Netflix that I hadn't seen. Um, Steve, the sun's been out. Why have you been sitting inside? I wasn't even out in the last week. Previous to that, it was a bit rubbish. <laughs> Are you going to come over and empty my shed? <laughs> no, there's a, no, there is an front offer front you can't refuse. <laughs> oh, that'd be a fun weekend, wouldn't it? What, emptying, what, emptying um, my shed? Ed's shed. <laughs> so it's not you Ed's shed, baby. Ed's shed. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I do you know what I was terrified during it. I was just going to. At one stage, it was really. It smelt really bad in there about a year and a half ago, and I was just worried I was going to encounter like a cat skeleton or something. But th- thankfully, that didn't didn't come to pass. So that was good. They were just spiders the size of your fist. Only one or two of them. I mean, they'd been busy and obviously clearing out in knowledge that you know the sheds sheds about to go. But yeah, as I was saying before the podcast kicked off, they, they'd been industrious enough to actually stick a gardening glove to the wall with webs. It was like a horror prop. It was absolutely magnificent. Kudos to them for that. So, uh, you know. Good. What were they trying to catch? I don't know. I, I, I can't. You? <laughs> <laughs> I wish Botwright would say more. He's, he's definitely the funniest person on this podcast. He's still sober. At least as far as I know. Well, that's right. He doesn't say for half an hour thinking of one-liners whilst the rest of us are doing all the talking. <laughs> So where it is, Steve. <laughs> yeah, it's not, that love, it. It was just not, pod- it's not that you love the sound of your own voice. Bot, bot right on the podcast. It wouldn't be much, you know, we'd be five minutes long. Be a lot of singers in there, but not much content. All killer, no filler. <laughs> <laughs> and you just proved the point. Uh, that wraps up the podcast for this week. My thanks to Steve Withers. Anyone can cook Alu Gobi, but can you bend a ball like Beckham? Mark Botwright. George Michael is still a superstar, and you still listen to Wham. Simon Crust. 
Jess, it's Bex. And it's Ellie. Lesbian, her birthday's in March. I thought she was a Pisces. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook, bookmarkavforums.com for the latest reviews, news and video. Plus, why not leave us a rating on iTunes if you enjoyed the show. I'm Phil Linton. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again next Wednesday. Thank <laughs> you.